Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. In this episode of Scores and Pours, we are going to talk about presidents and booze and music. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We've made it really easy for you to support us on that same link with a tier system that includes member-only content, and some of them even include merch. There's a link to merch there, too, if you just want to buy extras for your homies. Thank you to our existing patrons. We couldn't do it without you. Hello, Jill Mott. Good day, Emily Reese. How are you today? Hashtag 2020-21. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm excited to be here. I used to, you know, as much as I like kind of hate to love to hate the presidential world we live in, as weird as that sounds, uh, I used to be in love with learning about the presidents. I mm-hmm. like learned them all in second grade and I thought it was like really fun to to like learn about what they did and what they didn't do and what they supported and what they didn't support. And now that I'm an you know an adult and there's the internet gets them screwed <laughs> <laughs> in terms of uh feeling that there's hope there. That's <laughs> just so <laughs> grim. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I remember not long after I first met you, um, and I think everyone has something weird that they've memorized, you know, for whatever reason, and learning that you had memorized all the order of all the presidents. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Jackson, Van Buren, Harrison, Tyler, Polk, Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison, Cleveland, only president that's had two terms, not back-to-back, McKinley, Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and then I just won't say that one. <laughs> Biden. <laughs> Coming up in January. Well, that's an impressive list of crazy men. I know that my parents are proud of me being able to list all the presidents because, like, that's the party favor whenever like go somewhere <laughs> as a family my mom's like tell them all the presidents in order and I'm like great Washington <laughs> Adams Jefferson <laughs> and I like it's funny it, but I'm sure that in like 10 years just because of all the wine I've consumed I probably won't remember them all I'll be like Harrison Pierce Obama <laughs> Jefferson <laughs> but anyway yeah it's fine it's good so anyway presidents that's yeah, what we're what, on about. Yeah, what are you, how are you going to loop into this? Because I'm going to talk about what they drink. Oh, man, my shit's all over the place today. And in a fun way, I hope. I, <laughs> I looked at the playlist and I was like, what the hell does that have to do with presidents? I can't wait to find out. Yeah, well, I mean, where do you want to start? I want to know what Faust, Oh. that opera, yeah. has to do with the presidents. Oh, okay. Written well, by a composer who I know but don't know well. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that opera well, 
So yeah, okay. Well, all that's right. where I want to start. You asked. That's where I Th- want to start. That's a really great place to start. It turns out so Abraham Lincoln, who was our sixteenth president, uh, who drank water. <laughs> he also was not the most uh, musically gifted president, but he loved music. And he particularly fell in love with opera after he took office. He went to see the opera like 30 times uh, after he took office. So he he saw a lot of opera and he saw Faust at least four times. He wow. loved it so much. Cool. So Faust was an opera written by a French composer named Charles Gounod. And Gounod lived from 1818 to 1893, and Faust premiered in Paris, I believe, in 1859. And so, of course, by the time Abraham Lincoln took office, it was 1861, Faust had been out for a couple of years, and he fell in love with it. So let's listen to just a little bit of uh, music. This opens the third act of Faust, and it's got a really lovely uh, little instrumental section, nice, beautiful clarinet solo that goes into a vocal solo. And for those of you who have read Faust, or for those of you who haven't, just a refresher by Goethe, probably one of Germany's most well-known authors, um, and it's part part one. Both part one and two are considered masterpieces, but part one is considered like one of the best masterpieces mm-hmm. of literature, mm-hmm. still you know still existing. Yeah, it's it's basically another one of those getting tempted by the devil stories. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to actually mention that because I think it is important to know if you were going to go to this opera, it's important to know what the hell they're talking about. (laughs) And it is a lot of tempted by the devil kind of stuff. And part two is just thank God the opera has nothing to do with part two because it's a shit show, even though it's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, the opera focuses on that first part. What happens in the second part? A lot of existential. Oh, okay. Have you read it? Yeah. Okay. I love the flute in this movement. Mm -hmm. And then this beautiful clarinet solo. The libretto is in French, correct? The the, mm-hmm. the lyrics, as it were. Yep. yep. Lincoln just getting all down on the obscure opera. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Faust was tremendously popular, and uh, so Lincoln was not alone in his admiration mm. of it. Um, but yeah, I just, I just love that that Lincoln saw saw it Faust more than four times. Uh, at le- well, at least four times that yeah. they know. Of. I mean, that's awesome. So, how would you rate it now? Because um, you said it was very popular during its day, or when it was first, you know, the first mm-hmm. few decades it was out. I mean, right now, if I were to ask some friends that maybe no classical music, but yay or nay on opera, uh, knowing about it, I would say that they have no idea who this composer is. 
They they should know Guno's Faust. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. It's a pretty substantial work and still in the repertory worldwide. So does it come to Minneapolis? Like, why have I never seen it here? I mean, it's a huge production, and I can guarantee it's been here. So we'll talk more about Abraham Lincoln uh, in a minute, actually, because he and uh, Mrs. Lincoln, Mary Todd, were huge entertainers and had lots of folks come through. So we'll talk more about them in a bit. Well, I bet they didn't party as much as Dolly Madison. (laughs) We'll talk about her in a while because she's got a great story. When I, I'm just going to pop around because I'm not going to go in order. That was, I thought about doing that, but it just gets kind of boring pretty boring pretty quick. So I'm just going to like pop around to uh, some things that I think are pretty fun and pretty interesting. And I think I'll save Thomas Jefferson for just a short, a wee bit so we can- Just a wee bit. We'll let this Madeira that's sitting in front of us taunt us a little bit. But I'll start a little bit at the beginning, you know, like we'll talk about our second president, John Adams. He was president from 1797 to 1801. And he drank cider Mm. with his breakfast- which I think is pretty great. You know, cider then was likely a bit different than it is now. It was probably A, a lot cruder, B, likely less alcohol or ABV, alcohol by volume. That's what I wondered, yeah. Um, nowadays, we're drinking cider in, you know, anywhere from 10 ounces to a pint. You know, back then, yeah, they would drink, they could drink a pint of cider, but they were likely, John Adams wasn't having a pint of cider. He was maybe having a little mug something of that size. So, I don't know, kind of great. The fifth president, James Monroe, he spent one entire year worth of the budget that was dedicated to furniture on 1,200 bottles of Burgundy and Champagne. James Monroe, our fifth president from 1817 to 1825, and they didn't figure this out until they went to, like, go buy furniture and there was no money in that account account (laughs) or in that, you know, in that register, and they were like, where did all this money go? (laughs) Go look in the cellar, people. Which is <laughs> like so great. I freaking love it. McKinley, William McKinley, who is our 25th president, he loved rye whiskey. Now, oh. our president from 1897 to 1901, he's one of the few presidents that actually has a cocktail named after him called the McKinley's Delight, which is a cocktail that is three ounces of rye whiskey which is, has a higher content of rye, and then, you know, it's got barley in it as well. Uh, one ounce of sweet vermouth, two dashes of cherry brandy, and then the kicker, a dash of absinthe. <laughs> Just in case you want to make some good decisions for the nation, <laughs> throw some high-grade hallucinogenic spirit on top of that. And, you know, he he had like, he was very involved in like, there was the Spanish-American War. That's when McKinley was president. He was one of the, the many people involved, but at the end, the one that signed on the dotted line to annex Hawaii to the United States back wow. in 1898, just to give you a little piece of history. But yeah, a dash of absinthe. It's like, <laughs> if anybody uh, has consumed absinthe out there, or if you've listened to our a Halloween episode where we talk about spirits or the green devil, I think we call it. Yeah. 
Our president apparently liked it in Amazing. 1897. Yeah. So back to Lincoln, or do you want to talk more about? Nah, I I don't know. I just figured I'd get a few of them, and I think I'm just gonna like pop around, and then you can pop around, and then I'll pop around. Is that cool? This seems like a pop around kind of episode, really, because first of all, none of the uh, presidents were actual, you know, professional musicians, right? They were politicians. So even yeah. though presidents like Harry Truman, uh, for instance, he's you can find YouTube videos of Harry Truman playing piano. You can also find YouTube videos of Richard Nixon playing piano. Nixon was a classically trained pianist and quite talented and even composed a little piano concerto. You know what you can go online and also see? What? Pictures of Obama drinking a lot of beer. Yeah. <laughs> Obama, and, and I don't mean a lot like at one time, but Obama like really enjoys beer yeah. and he likes to commiserate over a beer or two and he... I think he loves beer as much as he loves the idea of, which is myself included, sharing it with people and having that be part of the experience. So he like had a summit. He was like, let's have a beer summit. Let's meet and talk over beer. And nice. they did. Good. Yeah. Right, and, and he had a, he met with like three highfalutin officials, sat outside in the White House lawn and drank a cold mug of beer. Nice. So good. You know, if you're having one, and you're making some world decisions, it's probably okay. It's probably going to just take the edge off. You're not going to be such a dick. Yeah, just, and they're probably not really making decisions as they are just shooting the shit. Yeah, feeling each other out probably. Yeah. Hi, Prime Minister of Canada. Let's have a cold one. That seems like an excellent way to hang out with the Prime Minister of Canada. It's also probably a good way to win some, win some elections like Woodrow Wilson did. Our 28th president, he was a scotch drinker, which scotch is a whiskey made in Scotland. And the one that, you know, usually they smell pretty peaty. Yeah. And he latched onto a whiskey slogan that was called, it was a brand of whiskey called Wilson. And they oh. said, Wilson, that's all. That was the whiskey slogan. Okay. And so Woodrow Wilson, that was his slogan, Wilson. <laughs> That's all. And he wow. won. I'm uh, apparently distantly related to Woodrow Wilson on my father's side. Wow. Like, uh, in what way? I don't know. I just guess that I share blood with Woodrow Wilson somehow. I, I don't know. Don't you figure you should, like, like know how, and then maybe you could be, I don't know, like, I guess you would never want to be in the electoral circle, the governmental circle, but, like, I don't know. No interest. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, Woodrow Wilson... Wasn't exactly everybody's favorite president, for one thing. No, for sure so, not. Okay, <laughs> I mean, truth. It's not truth. Like I want to, yeah. you know, but I mean, it's it's not, um, it's it's such a distant, this was one of my cousins, I should ask her how, how it exactly is, because it's been 30 years since we talked about it, but I don't know if it's a cousin thing or an aunt thing, but it's not like a great, great grandfather thing or anything that, you know what I mean? But um. it's it's more... You know, I'm distantly related yeah, to Yeah, like, yeah. okay. Yeah. I'm related to someone who marched with George Washington, like his right-hand man during some battle Neat. somewhere. And he was like his confidant and strategist and something. Is that something a maternal like that. connection or a paternal connection? Definitely a paternal connection. They're all <laughs> into that part of history. Gotcha. Okay. The others are like... yeah. Scandinavian. Right. Yeah, that's my mom's side of the family. Yeah. Anyway, back to Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, so uh, do you remember a, a few episodes back, 
I talked about a Venezuelan pianist named Teresa Carreño. Yeah. Well, she played for Abraham Lincoln. She played in the White House on the piano. Mary Todd had a had bought a special grand piano for the White House that apparently everyone hated playing. <laughs> I guess it was like really out of tune and stuff. Oh, but, no. But, uh, but it was a source of pride for them. They, they loved hosting these musical little events. And, and so Teresa Carreño was such a famous pianist known worldwide for her skill. I mean, she was a tremendously technically skilled pianist. And she, she played for, for uh, Mary and Abe. <laughs> and and she played music from her teacher, who was a composer, an American composer named Gottschalk. Gottschalk was born in New Orleans and was a basically a touring pianist performer that performed his own music. He wrote a ton and a ton, ton, ton of solo piano music, a lot of which got lost after he died. But Teresa Carreño played three pieces by Gottschalk for the Lincolns. She played one called, <laughs> first of all, apparently Carreño had kind of a sour puss attitude at times. And so when people kind of had expectations of her, she would not respond well. And so Mary Todd asked her to play, you know, piano. And so she chose three pieces by Gottschalk with kind of sad, depressing titles. Okay. She played The Dying Poet, The Last Hope. <laughs> and a funeral march called March de Nuit. So, Sounds kind of hipsterish, actually. <laughs> so it's kind of hilarious. And this being music, Gottschalk's music is all still very, um, I think, quite positive in tone. So mm-hmm. even these tunes, even though they have kind of a melancholic spin to them, they're, they're even the funeral march. Let's start by listening to this funeral march because it's it's certainly not like a Mahler funeral march or a Beethoven funeral and march. When was she? Um, she was from where again? Teresa Carreño was. was she, she was from Venezuela, Me- but she moved to the states and spent a lot of time in the states okay. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Gottschalk, he was like considered one of the first very accomplished pianists, right? Composer pianists here from the, America. From, from America, yep. yeah. Because yep. he traveled. He, like when I read about him, he just traveled everywhere. Yeah, like, he traveled extensively. Like South America, Europe, mm-hmm. cool. West Indies, all kinds of places all around the world and loved. I mean, that's just what he did. And so because of that, he almost never had students. But when he heard about Teresa Carreño, and I don't know if it's that he heard her play and decided to take her on as a student or what, but I mean, they really only had a couple of lessons together, but she had such admiration for him that she kind of championed his music then for the rest of her life, even though they really only spent a very short amount of time together as teacher-student. So yeah, so let's listen to this funeral march, March de Nuit by Gottschalk, one of the pieces that Carreño played for uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln in the White House. It's like the devil's funeral march. It's like, here I come. <laughs> yeah, there are these ex- 
these movements that seem like they're done in like a minor fashion. Yeah. Now it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, surprisingly chipper. I know. For, for a being funeral a march. funeral march. Yeah. Huh. One thing to note about Gutschalk, he he died at a very young age. I think he was yeah. born in like 29 and died in 69 or something. It was like he died when he was 40. Yep. Uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And, you know, supposedly it was like because he overdosed on something, like it could have been quinine, it could have been, I've read a few different things, but mm-hmm. because of his, the yellow fever he had, which is pretty insane, listen to our quinine episode and you'll realize how hard that is to OD on quinine. It's pretty insane. Um, but even Chopin list, just to give you an idea of how amazing this guy was in his composition, I mean, they noticed his talent right away and recognized mm-hmm. how how great he was. Yeah. So. Paris Conservatory, though, turned him, turned him away at first. And they, they turned him away uh, for a few really uncool reasons. And then through family connections, he did end up getting back into the Paris Conservatory because everybody here, quote unquote, on this side of the river <laughs> pond, uh, understood that he was a tremendous talent and should have formal training. And so they tried to get him in the Paris Conservatory, which, you know, as I just said, failed at first, but then, uh, but then worked out okay. Another piece that uh, she played, as I mentioned, The Last Hope. I love this one. I think this is a beautiful piece by uh, Louis Moreau Gottschalk. contemplative and beautiful Mm -hmm. little tune, yeah. And very romantic era. Tempo is all over the place. You can't really tap your foot to it. There's a lot of chromaticism. um, Very free. Yeah. When you say chromaticism, do you mind explaining that for folks? Chromaticism is notes that don't belong in the scale that we're using for our home key. So if we're in C major, we're using notes that don't don't technically belong. Um, Mm -hmm. But of course, there are ways to make them belong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this sounds like a great tune or composition to like to write to if you're Mm -hmm. if you like to write or maybe not listen to in a morning of 2020, depending on who you are. Um, But yeah, this is, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's a goodie. So uh, what else uh, do you, what's this Madeira here? Well, I want, I wanted to just kind of, you were talking about Lincoln and I had mentioned Lincoln was a water drinker. Yeah. Boo-hoo. But, I mean, hey, it's probably good to keep your mind clear if you're running the nation. Another person who didn't drink a lot was George W. Bush. When he, I guess he was like a frat boy and drank a lot. And he was, back in his day, like long before he was a politician or president, he was, like, supposedly he'd have, like, 
you know, he'd compete with you to, he'd have like the drinking parties mm. and drinking games and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And when he took office, that that stopped actually well before he took office. He kind of relegated himself to some some DC, as it were. What do we have in front of us? Just let's go there right now so we can drink some of it. Um, I, I wanted to talk about him last, but I, this seems like as good a time as any. We are drinking today a rare wine company. They are an importer of wines, uh, like they broker wines, and they also are almost single-handedly responsible for reviving the availability of good Madeira and the popularity, albeit small, of Madeira here in the country. In the United States, Madeira used to be from like in the 1800s, 1900s, but 1800s for sure it was like the drink of the colonies, we'll say, and the, you know, the privileged eastern seaboard of the United States from, you know, late 1700s to, we'll just say, 18, middle 1800s. And Thomas Jefferson was someone that was responsible for that. It was popular before he was around, but it gained in popularity because of his promotion of it, and he would have it at parties and stuff. Rare Wine Company they got together with a producer of Madeira and a producer that's got a lot of old stocks of Madeira called Vinoche Barbeto. And they got together to come up with, it's called the Historic Series, and they named different types of Madeira, which is a fortified wine that has been happily cooked, if it's a good quality one, (laughs) and it has to come from the island of Madeira. Those are the three things that make a Madeira Madeira. And then there are subcategories of them. So they would take a famous city on the eastern seaboard like Savannah, like New York, like Boston, and then they would pair that up with a popular style like Malmsey, which Malmsey is a sweeter style usually, and it's from a certain grape varietal, Malvasia. And there's a drier style called Cerchial, and that's Cerchiel is also the grape, um, and that would be a different city. Well, And then they started, they did a commemorative blend for Thomas Jefferson, for Benjamin Franklin, both connoisseurs and um, drinkers of fine Madeira. And this one is the Thomas Jefferson Special Reserve that has been released from the Rare Wine Company with the collaboration of and stocks of Vinoche Barbeto. Just a background on Madeira. So that's what we're going to drink. The grapes need to grow and age on the island of Madeira, meaning grapes need to grow on the island and the wine needs to age on the island of Madeira. It's fortified with a grape spirit depending on what style you're making. If you're making a drier style, it's fortified later after the wine is fortified dry. If it's going to be a sweeter style, it's it's fortified a little earlier like a port to maintain some sweetness. And then it has to be cooked. And the reason that this happened was they would fortify wines from the island of Madeira and from Portugal to, to make it over to the East Indies to, to with explorers, right? And what happened was you had a lot of wines that they would cross as they're going around the western part of Africa. They'd cross the equator and cook. And then when they would come up close to India and, and that area, they would cross the equator again and cook twice, And when they arrived, people would drink them and be like, wow, these wines are better now than they were at home. So they would now send ships all over the Atlantic to cook. And they realized, well, that's just not cost effective. So then they decided to heat the wines up. And you can have wines that are boiled 
or straight jacketed over like a barrel or something or over a big stainless steel vat, which is obviously not the best way to do it, but still a way to do it. These are wines that are aged in the highest attics in the island of called Canteiros. And they're attics that they're positioned a certain way to receive the sunlight, and they get very warm very slowly, and then they cool very slowly. So you have this very long aging process, and that's how you get the best Madeiras. They're very age-worthy. And what we're about to drink here is a blend of styles. Thomas Jefferson, he learned a recipe. So in that day, a lot of people would drink a single Madeira from like a single cask, but a lot of people would be like, oh, I want to take a little bit of that sweet Madeira and I want to blend it with a little bit of my dry Madeira. Weird. And what yet to create like a style they liked. And Thomas Jefferson had a law school mentor. The mentor's wife had this recipe that Thomas Jefferson became very fond of, and it was one-tenth superfine Malmsey, approximately, and superfine meaning Malmsey, we know it's got a little sweetness, and superfine meaning of great quality, and then nine-tenths dry Madeira. So we think that that was probably a Verdello or a Cerchial, like two grape varietals that are made in a drier style to make what he called a silky Madeira. And quote-unquote silky means that it is dry, dashed with a little sweetness. So they came up with, uh, based on Verdello, this is about 80% Verdello, give or take, and then there's a small percentage, like 10 to 20% of 80-plus-year-old Malmsey in this wine. Hmm. And so we're drinking a wine that's you know, anywhere from 20 to 80 years old. Here's, the, the, I think, the approximation. And this is a flavor that's probably one of the closest flavors we have to what Thomas Jefferson really liked to drink when he could afford it before he went broke. I can't believe how brown it is. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Yeah, usually Madeiras, um, they can have like a kind of amberish with like some green green kind of quality to it all the way to like a brown, mm-hmm. almost like a lighter brown color, the sweeter they get. It smells like kind of like rum-soaked raisins almost. Yeah, it is kind of rummy. Whoa. You notice, raisins, raisins. Mm-hmm. And you notice that, damn, that sweetness, mm-hmm. how well it's incorporated, like the dry yeah. keeps this really refreshing. The acidity is still quite bountiful. So this is a sipper, right? You sip on this. Yeah, you really do. And this is 19% alcohol. Um, most okay. people, you know, when you're drinking this, you're drinking, you know, two to three ounces and then you kind of call it a day and you have this before a meal or, or after a meal. I like it a lot. I really like it with certain things. Like I love this with food, you know, then I would only have two, three ounce glasses and then you kind of call it, right? Because sure. it's just a lot. Um, yeah. But a really beautiful experience. It is very smooth too. It's very um, warming and comforting. Yeah. We're beyond, we're beyond like it's medium sweet, I would say. We're not very sweet. We're not like sticky sweet, like Sauterne or something, but it does have like this, if brandy were less alcoholic. To me, it's like, Raisin, like you put raisins in a blender till they're wine textured. <laughs> well, and with maybe some like, like a little bit of like vanilla pods, vanilla yeah. is a little bit of that, dried mm-hmm. vanilla bean or something. Yeah, but not like oaky vanilla, like more no. pure vanilla. Yeah. Yeah. F- yep, for sure. And there's a touch of like malt, mm-hmm. like malted milk balls on the finish, but not that cloying. 
So this reminds me a lot of sherry, and I know it's because it's fortified, but you never said the word floor with Madeira for one thing. So even, but it still totally reminds me of sherry. So tell me about it. So she's mentioning floor, that yeast, veil of yeast that is atop a not completely filled up barrel of sherry. It can develop a yeast film called floor. And film, that's with all the goodness in the world, so it's not a pejorative. (laughs) Sherry is from Spain. Mm -hmm. Madeira from Portugal, from the island of Madeira. Sherry fortified in kind of the more the beginning of the process. Okay. This can be beginning and end. And sherry is affected by that veil of yeast called floor, whereas this is not, and the Madeira is cooked, whereas sherry is not. Right. So, and you'll have way more of like a nuttiness, like almondy flavor, and a little bit more crass. And like Madeira tends to be, overall, it can be really ragey and acidic, but it tends to have a little bit of a smoother core all over. My other question, though, too, and I'm glad you brought it up again because I I'm, I really wanted to ask this. You, and of course, I was always taught you cook alcohol like wine. The alcohol cooks out. So how are you cooking Madeira without losing that? And I understand it's fortified then, but how, how does that work? Because you're, not, you're technically not cooking it at 180 or 212 degrees okay. or sautéing. You're more like... or bake boiling for a really long time in your oven at like a low Mm -hmm. 200 if you're braising something. In this case, it's like wine will technically start to quote unquote degrade much above like six, like 70 degrees in a cellar, 80 degrees, 90 degrees. It would start to what they call matterize. And that term comes from Madeira. Like it gets these kind of cooked taste. And so in these, in these cantheiros, these attics in the best Cellars in Madeira, which I guess cellars is not the right term because they're above ground and a few floors up, but they're generally very warm. They're going to be 100 degrees, 90 degrees, 80 degrees, 110 degrees, 70 degrees. You know, they're going to oscillate, but they're not 190 degrees. They're not, when I say cooked, thank you for bringing that to my attention because they're technically not cooked like microwave food. or food cook. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more just like in it's a like wine a term. Term for it sitting up in a warm place. Exactly. Gaining flavor and character because of the fact that it's being stored in this warmer place. Yep. Yep. And think Amazing. of like and think of if you were to like when you toast something, just and now granted toast you're dealing with super high heat. Yeah. But think of how bread goes from being plain to having just a little bit more of those like caramelized notes, mm-hmm. that Maillard reaction, that's what's happening here. You're having okay. that warmth is creating more depth and more complexity, Amazing. which isn't the case for a lot of wines. If this weren't fortified, we'd have problems. Okay. Because you know? then you're trying to do, you're trying to matterize a wine that is low alcohol and that's very susceptible. And so that fortification has stabilized it a little bit. Okay. Why does Thomas Jefferson have a cuvee of Madeira named after him? He was working and living in France and developed a love of food and wine over there. And he traveled, learned a lot about wine. Once he became president, he traveled to Europe extensively through Germany and and France specifically and learning a lot about what a different vintage tastes like from another vintage. And he took a lot of really scrupulous notes and he really became, he brought the sort of connoisseurship back to the United States at the time that there wasn't before. And 
he also started to, for all intents and purposes, he was like a, a broker. You know, he was responsible for trying to get wines from certain people that he liked over here to, to drink. And then he would, you know, create a seller of those wines and he would have relationships with those people, much like a broker or an importer would now, which is really, you know, for the day, it was like writing letters. Hey, how was the vintage this year? Can you please send me some wine? I would like this amount. Wait for the letter. Letter comes back. Yes, I will ship you this wine. I mean, it was just like such a process, but we have Thomas Jefferson to thank for that connoisseurship and subsequent kind of brokerage of wine that we never had before. And he was kind of ahead of his time. Like nowadays, you know, people can say that they like wine and, you know, they drink what magazines tell them to drink and the vintages that magazines tell them to drink and the expensive stuff or the highly rated stuff. Um, Jefferson was really, especially when he was not president afterwards and didn't have a lot of money anymore, he had to find the bargains. And he was really into like finding really obscure, weird wines that weren't available, like wines from southern Spain and wines from the Azores, the islands, you know, off the off the coast of Portugal. And so that was really he was ahead of his time in in terms of like being ahead of the curve and finding cool wines that nobody was drinking, mostly because he was broke, but um, because he did really have a true interest in the flavor of different wines from around the world. In 1798, so when did Washington, when was Washington, because John Adams, he was our second president. He was our second president. And when did he take office? John Adams took office in 1797. Okay, so the year later, after that, John Adams... Uh, through an act of Congress, formed the Marine Band. And the Marine Band from the U.S. Marine Corps uh, now has 10 or 12 different field bands throughout the country, but then there's also the President's Own, which is what the Marine Band back then in 1798, they became the President's Own in 1801, and then since then there are all these other field bands too, right? Yeah, I think TJ was like, I want them to... T.J. Thomas Jefferson, like he's my homie, even though he was kind of a lot of people for he good had reason. Issues. Yeah, thank yeah. you, thank you for getting right to that point. Yeah, he was like, oh, I want them to play at my inauguration, and then it just sort of happened that they played at all the inaugurations. Yeah, and they uh, also, you know, now you may know, hail to the chief. And uh, the president's own—they've they, been around, you know, since literally since 1798, which is a super long time. One of the most, if not the most famous leaders of the president's own Marine Band was John Philip Sousa. John Philip Sousa wrote the most famous march music out of America ever. So here are some examples. Stars and Stripes Forever. Washington Post March. He, uh, for instance, uh, John Philip Sousa wrote um, Semper Fi, which is one of the Marine Band's, uh, one of the Marines' theme songs. 
I don't know if they necessarily think of them as theme well, isn't songs. Isn't it called but, Semper Fidelis? Or yeah, fid- Semper Fidelis. Okay. Uh, always faithful. That's one yeah. of the Marines' uh, um, mottos, right? And so Semper Fi, that's what Marines say to each other. <laughs> um, and Semper Fi is also a super famous John Sousa March. As I mentioned, it's one of the theme songs of the Marine bands or of the Marine Corps. So you hear it a lot associated with Marines. This is what that sounds like. John Philip Sousa led the Marine Band for 12 years and wrote loads of marches for him. I didn't know that they were the oldest existing professional music organization in the United States. Yeah. The U.S. Marine Band. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yes. I mean, it makes sense. I guess. Yeah, I mean, and even to this day, it's a tremendously prestigious ensemble to play in. It's it a better huge be. deal. Do you know what their budget is? No. More than the wine budget. <laughs> well, it should be. <laughs> There's a lot of Wh- people in it. <laughs> the pr- lot of people come to the White House. <laughs> a lot more people than this band. It's $10 million a year. Wow. And it literally is, their job literally is to serve the president. Like, they're literally the president's own band. So... They do all kinds of ceremonies every year. They do all they do some funerals. They do weddings, but not like my wedding. They're not, you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh yeah, they're they're it's pretty amazing little crew and and again, just tremendous players for sure. Dude, I would love to be in charge of the presidential wine cellar. That would be filled with some douchey opus one, and then it would have some like <laughs> awesome natty wine. It would have like <laughs> all the things you need. Mm-hmm. Yes, have your Ace of Spades or your La Grande Dame. Have all those champagnes that you need to have because they're three figures. And then let's have some natty liters of just natty wine. The president's having a bad day. Just be like, hey, buddy, or Madam President, we'll get there. Just have this chalice of 12% alcohol nattiness. (laughs) Zip them right up. John Philip Sousa also invented something very important. Yes. In the world of jazz. The sousaphone. Classical music, yes, the sousaphone. A tuba that could be heard from the back of the ensemble. Because, of course, a concert tuba, the bell faces straight up to the heavens. But a sousaphone wraps around a person's body, and then the bell shoots forward and it really does look like a really big toy, honestly. And they kind of sound a little shitty most of the time. But they're still amazing and have bled into all different types and styles of music around the world. And they're awesome for it. I love it. That 
That was one of the instruments that when I, when my band director would go out of town and then they would get a substitute teacher and I would trade instruments with fellow band members. And, you know, there was like, I wanted to play the drums, the percussion section, and I'd get into like the clarinet section. And then, but then I realized that I didn't, the clarinet was really hard for me. And then I'd go try to play someone's trombone, which is way easier than the clarinet, surprisingly. One of those was like, hey, because I played the trumpet, I was like, hey, yo, can I play your sousaphone? <laughs> and that was that was a revelation. It was great. <laughs> I almost didn't know how to fit into it. Sousaphone. Invented 1893. And so then I- I've got one more sousaphone story, but we'll save it. Okay, you want to hear about Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, man. It's pretty great. So Teddy Roosevelt, he hated the word Teddy, actually, as a nickname, so I'll call him Theodore. Really? 26th president of the United States. Yep, 1901 to 1909. He was the vice president and became the president because of McKinley's assassination. What I know him best for is his conservation. He established the national park system, correct? Yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. He loved the mint julep. Nice. <laughs> and he would take mint... Leaves. Is that what they drink at the Kentucky Derby? It is, okay. yeah. All right, go on. He would take mint leaves specifically from the garden at the White House. It was mm, like a thing. Nice. You muddle them with a dash of water just so that the your sugar cube can mix in well. Two to three ounces of rye whiskey, which who are we kidding? Probably three. It was Teddy, <laughs> by the you know, after all. And then a fourth of an ounce of brandy. And you mix that all up and then you garnish it with a couple sprigs of mint and that was Theodore Roosevelt's favorite uh, favorite drink. Nice. Rutherford B Hayes, he was president from 1877 to 1881. He was our 19th president. And 18th, 19th president. And he what was crazy about him was he banned alcohol from the White House because of his teetotaling wife who was named Lemonade Lucy. That's what people called her. So <laughs> nobody could drink in the White House. Even people wow. that wanted to go into the White House and they preferred, you know, a martini, they preferred, they, she was like, no, not like having Like a 19th it. century Tipper Gore, like taking the fun out of everything. Yeah, that was her. <laughs> but so I just, now I'll, I'll, the opposite of that um, is like my, one of my favorite stories. I should save it for the end, but I won't. James Madison, our fourth president, he was president from 1809 to 1817. Supposedly, Mr. Madison drank a pint of whiskey a day. Which, it's amazing that not all of our presidents died of cirrhosis when you find out how much they drank, for how long they drank, (laughs) but that aside, Dolly Madison, (laughs) one time a week, she would have hundreds of guests over on a Wednesday, and they got to be known as Mrs. Madison's Wednesday Nights, and you didn't have to be like a dignitary or anything, it would just be like you had to be peripherally engaged in, you know, some sort of social circle and you just, as long as you greeted the Madisons, you could show up. Wow. Um, if you had to be invited, of course. And her parties were complete with snuff boxes that had quote unquote magical influence. <laughs> AKA cocaine or something like that? <laughs> I, all I know is that it sounds like a, when you read about them, it sounds like a blast. They are documented. Um, there were like plenty of there's plenty of booze at these gatherings, and I just think that that's really funny when you hear about these Molly, Mrs. Madison's Wednesday nights. Something else I'll, I'll mention, Herbert Hoover, uh, when we think of Prohibition, so that started, that was 1920 to 1933, and Herbert Hoover, he was our 31st president. His wife, 
dumped the entire White House cellar, his personal cellar as well, down the drain because Prohibition was in full swing and she was like, we need to do things right. And he was like, WTF. But so, I mean, what's wow. with all these wives? We sandwiched the cool one in between the not so cool ones. But on when he was, he had like really severe pneumonia and he was like 80 something. Hoover? Yeah. And they said, what can we get you? And he's like, a dry martini, <laughs> which is so great. It's like, that would be me if I were in a hospital and it would be for whatever reason. And they'd mm-hmm. be like, what can I get you? I'd be like, can I please get a glass of Petnet? Yeah. Please. Yeah, you would never ask for a dry martini, ever. I mean, I would maybe ask for a gin martini. It would depend yeah. on how sick I was. <laughs> what do I need it to do? Exactly. And I guess if do you I need just... need the tonic or not? <laughs> yeah, I guess it would probably... I would want the pet net if I just had like a really... I was in there for like a cold or whatever, COVID-y, I don't know. I don't know why I said tonic. There's no tonic in a martini. But I mean, maybe you'd want... Maybe I'd want a gin and tonic. You'd probably take that before you'd take a martini, I bet. Yeah, you're probably right. Just because a yeah. martini would make me... Like, it'd make me go to sleep. Yeah. And I'd want to, like, enjoy my gin and tonic and, like, chat with all the nurses and the doctors and be like, do you know what type of gin they put in this? <laughs> yeah, I thought that that was funny when I when I read that. Who repealed Prohibition? Mr. FDR, yeah. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Thank you. Thank you. 1933 to 1945. I think that it was, like, in the middle of March of the same year he became president was when Prohibition was repealed, so two months later. He was our 32nd president. And I would say once a year on President's Day, I do, you know, some people have their day off from school. I'll call my little peanuts, my nieces. Um, We usually record on a Monday, so we've recorded a couple times on, you know, Mm -hmm. President's Day. Yeah. I do usually raise a glass to FDR. I'm like, thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Cheers Cheers to to that. (laughs) Imagine going through COVID-19 during Prohibition. In a dry country. (laughs) (laughs) three more music i've got i've got i've got 35 presidents left to talk about no i'm just kidding i'll I'll only talk about probably 10 more okay because i'm done after this so (laughs) okay um and really there's there's really uh, actually not even music to listen to. I just wanted to mention Warren G Harding joined the band and played the sousaphone when he found out that he was the Republican nominee for president in 1920. Cute. And so there's a picture that you can find online of Warren G Harding holding a sousaphone standing amongst the band the the day that he found out he got the nomination. So. I mean, that's what I would do if I were, I'd be like, hey, I'm going to become president of the United States. Let me grab a xylophone. Yeah. And I guess Harding could play that too. He could play just about anything that you gave to him. He could, he was very musically talented and Sweet. played all kinds of instruments. So yeah. That's really cool. What about in the playlist, you had a Mozart. Oh, that's because um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a video of uh, Harry Truman playing the opening movement of Mozart's 11th Piano Sonata, which is known as, I mean, I just have always called it 331. That's the K number. And it's a hugely popular Mozart piano sonata from the first movement through the final movement, which is a a Turkish-influenced movement. Do you want to, can we listen? Yeah, we can listen to the opening. Absolutely. It's beautiful little theme and variations, which is kind of fun because um, in Mozart's time, it was traditional that the first movement 
be something different than that. So the fact that Mozart used a little theme and variations for the first movement is kind of fun. And plus, it's just a beautiful melody. So let's listen to it. Yeah, it's cool to hear something that a president could actually play. Right now, we're going to listen to a pianist named Mitsuko uh, Uchida. And Mitsuko is known as a really brilliant Mozart interpreter. So you'll listen to her play it. And then if you go listen to Truman's video, if you go watch it on YouTube, you can tell he's not you know, practicing eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, but apparently he did play a little bit of piano every day. So, you know, it was a huge part of his life. So anyway, but here's uh, Mitsuko Uchida playing that first movement that uh, Truman liked. So beautiful. You know why Truman was maybe not the best of interpreters? <laughs> was he drinking too much? <laughs> well, you know, you're running a nation. Yes. Get it. Hard work. I, I get it. Our 33rd president from 1945 to 53, this is why he couldn't. Go on. Whilst running a nation, you know, you got to wake up early. You're waking up at 5, 6 a.m. Go take a walk on the grounds, get your day you know, under your belts, get, know what you got to do, center, get a massage. Yeah. And then sit down to breakfast with some bourbon. Okay. That's a questionable choice. Never missing a day. Wow. Who's playing the better Mozart? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's he, and granted, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, that's, that's insane. That's incredible. A bourbon with breakfast every, every morning. Day. Yeah. So I wonder what he was eating. Did you find that out? Like, what's he eat? Is he eating two eggs in, and bacon? I mean, gross. You'd, you'd almost imagine because what? I mean, toast. Like, what are you? You're not having like you're not know. having a you're not having a smoothie. Yeah, you're not he having yogurt and granola with your bourbon. No, you're not. <laughs> and during those days, it was like big hearty American breakfast. Burr, right. You know, so right. like there was no. Good God. Could you imagine having tofurkey? <laughs> and bourbon? That's just ah. insane. It's just so insane. He's and, vegan and he with would, bourbon. <laughs> and he would complain about he would complain about like weak cocktails. So if anybody on staff made a week like he liked old fashions and if they made him weak, he'd like tell them to make another. He'd have cocktails with his wife almost nightly. Cute. So Truman liked to put it down. Nixon, wow. our 37th president, was kind of a jerk, you know, for many reasons. But oh, yeah. um he would he loved when he would have, you know, dignitaries and, and special people over to the White House. He would drink Old Bordeaux himself. Chateau Lafitte was a favorite that goes for hundreds of do- dollars a bottle. And then he would serve cheaper stuff to his guests. Amazing. Like, I mean, I would look and be like, hey, your wine's a different color than mine. What are you drinking? But, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> most people probably weren't paying attention to that. George Washington, our first president, he drank porter. So a darker oh, beer. Super dark, yeah. Spiked with molasses. Gag. Who wasn't getting fed well? Yeah. <laughs> Did he need those extra calories? Did he have a sweet tooth? That's just the grossest thing I've ever heard. Porters probably weren't as sweet as they are nowadays. Porters can kind of be get get a little have a little sweetness okay. from the malt. Not okay. much, not like a sweet beverage by any means. But yeah. with molasses, that's insane. Wow. I mean, yeah, a lot of these people in the they were they used to say slightly fuddled. 
was a word for slightly intoxicated uh, that was in in like kind of higher usage in the mid late yeah. 1800s so a lot of these guys were maybe more than slightly fuddled come the pm hours i have a few more to mention franklin pierce he was our 14th president the, he was one of the worst presidents in our history not only approval rating mm. but like just you look at his history he had a terribly depressive life as well he actually died uh, when he was 64 years old of cirrhosis he had great hair that was about all he had going for him. You look at him <laughs> in, in images and you're like, not a bad looking guy. His <laughs> wife checked out mentally like a quarter of the way through their marriage. She like buried mm. a son. His like, I think he had no surviving children. All mm. of them perished, but one maybe. Mm. So a sad story. He was like one of the presidents that drank the most for the for, throughout his whole life. Okay. Um, and not just like before he was president or during mm-hmm. his presidency because he had the budget and people, yeah. you know, inviting people over. No, it wasn't poor dude, but not really. Grover Cleveland, he was our 22nd and 24th president. He's the only president, as I mentioned, to have two terms that were not back-to-back. And he tried to hold himself to four beers a day. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so good, so great. I read that. I was like, "Yes, my friend. Yes, you'd fit right in during COVID times." Oh man. Yeah. Well, one thing <laughs> Cleveland said when he left office was, I think he s- spoke to one of his members of of the staff um, that was in charge of like you know arrangement and household stuff, and he said, "Just please leave everything as is, because I'll be back in four years." Wow. And he was like, "Don't change the decor." If you do, you know how to put it back. Wow. <laughs> I know. Pretty crazy. Bill Clinton, he liked the snake bite. Gross. Gross. Isn't that cider and whiskey or cider, cider and, and beer? beer? Half lager and half cider. Yeah, isn't that really bad for you too? Isn't that like really hard on you hangover-wise to mix those two like that? What did this dude eat? I don't know. So he was like know. McDonald's all day. Was he really? He was, yeah, he was just <laughs> not, you know. Obama, He's. I, I mentioned that he likes beer. There was a guy... And his kitchen staff that wanted to experiment with, they had an apiary on the grounds and he wanted to use some of the honey to experiment with in the kitchen. And one of the things he wanted to do with it was make beer. Mm. And Obama said, by all means. And it ended up being a really passable, like it was actually quite delicious. And so they would serve it to guests. They'd give it as gifts until it ran out. Yeah, Um, yeah, so that's kind of a cool story that they had like their own honey beer. There are presidents that have done it better than others. But what they did know how to do, a lot of them was drink. And so it's interesting to, for me to know what these very powerful human beings, some smarter than others, what were they drinking on a Friday <laughs> night? What were they drinking at lunch? Gerald Ford, they needed to say, hey, I know you like your martinis with lunch. Lay off, you're the president. Well, hence Betty Ford. I mean, Betty had trouble too. <laughs> you know what I got to say to that? To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We would very much appreciate your support and thank you so much to those that already support us you can also find a link to buy merch there for if you want a scores and pores hoodie or a scores and pores t-shirt 
We are on Instagram at Scores and Pours, and that's a great way to get in touch with us. Um, give us some show ideas, give us some feedback, constructive criticism, all the things. Tell us how much you love us. We read each and every DM. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Mr. Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. Kitty.